Well, hi everybody, it's Turpie Miller here. Welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. And I'm here in a patisserie called Les Deux Amis, is that right, Chris? Uh, two friends, and it's quite a tiny, intimate place. And I'm here with Chris Berry, whom I realise I've known from when our faces were different, or at least mine was much younger. Yes. We were in Brisbane at Griffith University. He didn't, he didn't throw up when he said that word. Almost. Right. <laughs> Brisbane, which the French has still not been donated to the French for their nuclear tests, which I would like to happen. Um, <laughs> he remains a big fan, dear <laughs> Um And this must have been in 1988. Yep. And you had come, I think, from China. From Beijing. I've been working in Beijing for the last three years. You'd been subtitling films, is that right? For part of the time, I've worked as... Um, Throughout my time in Beijing as a so-called foreign expert, um, <laughs> we won't ask expert in what, but, um, and for two of those years I worked for China Film Export and Import Corporation, doing things like subtitling, helping them to translate their publicity materials, and so on. And then for the final year, I worked for a magazine um, called China Reconstructs. Oh, that's right. Which is the uh, Chinese, their vision of life magazine or something in numerous languages, a pictorial that was intended to promote a positive image of China to the world. So you've been an apparatchik from way back, really, is what you're telling us. <laughs> I've done, done what I've been paid to do for many years. <laughs> and now he's kissed the Queen's shilling, or worst about a King's, actually, King's College. That's where I'm working Sorry, now. Yes, yeah. that's right. He's kissed the King something around. Yes. Uh, King's College London, where Chris is Professor of Film Studies. That's that right, yes. Yeah. And I wondered if we could start, we'll go back, back, back later, but if we could start by saying, what you're actually working on now, apart from that cheesecake? Well, mostly I focus on the cheesecake. <laughs> yeah. but, um, in terms of working on, in terms of research, yeah, why not? I'm trying to finish a project that started out at Goldsmiths, um, where we're looking at screens in public spaces. They don't necessarily have to be showing movies, but they have to have moving images on them. And so those kinds of screens, I guess, are um, sometimes very large advertising screens, but they're also used for information, directions, details about the stock market, all kinds of things. Advertising? Especially advertising, advertising yes. Jumbotrons, I guess. Yes, indeed. Um, and the project asks the question, this technology has become available more or less at the same time everywhere in the world. How is it being taken up in different ways in different places? It compares Shanghai, London and Cairo. Um, Cairo when Mubarak was still around. Um, and we're looking at, in each city, a transport hub, a museum or similar cultural institution, and um, a retail site of some sort, um, which could be a high street, it could be a mall, it could be an intersection, and trying to see what we can see about what people are doing there and how the screens become part of that public environment. And so the Cairo model at the time would have been to represent where there'd be a lot of overt propaganda on behalf of a regime? Well, actually, in Cairo, no. Uh, no. But in Cairo, no, the, 
in fact, the most common use of the screen in Cairo is actually the old television set. And you can't really enter a store in Cairo without there being a television set playing some sort of television program. And I think this is because retail in Cairo, unlike in our own experiences, is still very much a social interaction and you need something to talk about because it takes a while. And so having something on and, you know, chat to the shopkeeper, yes, or on the news or a football match or, you know, get to talk to the shopkeeper about that or about other people in the shop, to talk to other people in the shop about it and so on. Oh, it's interesting. So it's a sort of phatic thing. It doesn't really matter what it is, but it's where there's activity going on that gives you something in common at the moment. That's right. But then enables you to interact. I think so. But, of course, when there is a very special event, like the, the soccer match, um, the coffee shops in Cairo, the Awa, which they also always have a television set, and they become a venue where people gather specifically for that. Um, and similarly, of course, with all the recent political events, um, I think people gathered to watch Mubarak's trial, as long as it was being televised, in, in the coffee shops and so on. And what about in Shanghai? Well, in Shanghai, I think that what's interesting to me is the way in which... Um, it just got a lot louder in here. This yes, like, I know. It's, it's the coffee machine, I'm seconds. afraid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, Shanghai, in Shanghai, which is where you know, which you know yes, very well. And which is where I spent most of my time for this project. Um, I think what I'm interested in the most is the regulation of inside and outside space. Um, screens seem to be taken up in a way that inherits a long tradition of putting up words at boundary lines in China. So that, um, you know, if you, go, if you climb a mountain in China, you'll get to the top and discover somebody has inscribed something in huge characters at the top. Um, usually some Confucian encomium about behaving yourself in some way or other. Um, and so similarly now, for example, if you go to visit somebody in China, they're most likely going to be living in some sort of walled compound. Um, and maybe a whole block, you know, a huge block that's walled off. And then when you go in there, as you go in through the doorway or the gate, you'll discover um, a screen very often, which has PowerPoint slide effects. I mean, it's, it's sort of a very simple LED screen. And what will be on it will be a mix of things like today's weather. Um, watch out, there are pickpockets have been found recently in our compound. Uh, make sure you lock your windows. Um, behave yourself, don't get drunk, you know, don't... Various kind of mix of, and Or notice about upcoming yoga class next week on Thursday, that kind of thing. Um, so it sort of marks it as a shared space that you're entering yeah. for certain kinds of common interests that are assumed about the residents and so on. But we just don't see that really here very much. But it, 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 the, before the LED screen took over this function, it used to be blackboards. And if you go to the older neighbourhoods, there are still blackboards. So that's an example of a kind of localised version of what happens here. And LED meaning light-emitting diode. I think that's correct, yeah. <laughs> Which is, of course, much more helpful to the description an LED because yeah. when you say LED everybody knows what you mean when you say light-emitting diode people think you must be a surgeon or something <laughs> 
And what about here in London? Here in London, um, I think what's interested us is the thing we see in London that we don't really see so much of at the moment in Shanghai or so much of uh, in Cairo is public art and the use of screens as part of public art. Um, and so the way in which public art and screens are part of regeneration, gentrification, putting in screens is part of saying we're in an upmarket neighborhood now, we can afford the latest, newest technology to flock you stuff, but, we can, but in order to redeem it so it's not just about flogging you stuff. We also have an artwork somewhere in there, right? And, and quite often it's screen art. And so that's what, I've not been working on that so much, but two of my colleagues on the project have been working on that side of things. So those are kind of very local uses, but then we've also looked at how in a, in a space where you get similar uses, like museums, you still get various kind of local differences in the ways they're played out. So my colleague Janet Harbour looked at the London Science Museum and I looked at the Shanghai Science and Technology Museum and the London one of course has been around for a long long time and they're in they're dealing with the transition from museums based on erratic objects to um, more mm, interactive uses and so on whereas the Shanghai Museum is only 10 years old and from the very beginning it was modeled on Disneyland and the idea was to make every exhibit like a Disney ride um, that you would, you know, that you, but it, at the same time it would be pedagogical but you wouldn't know it was pedagogical because you were so much enjoying the interactive experience. It's incredibly popular actually and kids and families love it. Um, and so that was quite interesting to think about and look at. And then also the way in which differences around play out around things that are, you know, couldn't be sort of said to be Chinese or British, but the fact that the London Science Museum is free and the Shanghai Science Museum you pay means that in London you can potentially linger on a single exhibit and explore, you know, screen archives of information for hours and then leave and not worry because you could come back two days later to look at the rest of the museum. But in Shanghai, feel, people feel they have to try everything, um, or as much as they can, because they've paid a ticket. And therefore, the exhibits slash rides are designed in such a way that you sort of move through it and you're done with it. You reach a clear conclusion within a short period of time, and then you move on to the next one. Yeah. And the screens are all part of this. Here in Britain, it's sort of an article of faith and of government policy that public museums are free. I think there are, I looked this up for somebody the other day, there are 240 public mm. museums in London. Right. It, it yeah. may be the most laden city with museums. No, no, there are other, I mean, other cities have many more, but London has a lot, yeah. I think Berlin has something like 600 museums, something crazy like that, yeah. It only has about 600 people. I know, it's kind of, well, you know, <laughs> Germans are very educated, you know. Yeah, right. <laughs> but anyway, uh, it's an article of faith yeah. that these things should be free, um, as opposed to obviously lots of other countries, some countries where if you're a foreigner, you pay more than if you're a national. Which used to be the case in China, but not so much anymore. And uh, somewhere one size fits all in terms of payment. Uh, somewhere there's a distinction between public and private, blah, blah, blah. But, yeah. Well, that's, that's fascinating. So you mentioned Janet Harbord is one of your collaborators mm. on this, and who else? The other two people are Rachel Moore, who's at Goldsmiths. Janet's now at Queen Mary, 
And also, we're working with somebody called Amal Khalaf, who also works as a curator at the Serpentine. And we're working with her, um, focused a lot on her Cairo connections. And what's Serpentine? Pardon my ignorance. The Serpentine Gallery in uh, Hyde Park. Oh, okay. Hyde Park, yes. Yeah. 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 Oh, fun. That's great. Really interesting. And is there the notion of a particular outcome to this? Well, there'll be so books. There'll um, be books. Um, journal articles. Um, we've collected a lot of the data we gathered on the website at Goldsmiths, still based at Goldsmiths. Um, and I think the, the project was called Tracking the Screen, Mapping the Moving Image, or is it Tracking the Moving Image, Mapping the Screen? I forget. But if you Google that, one, you'll get it. Um, and Google doesn't care what order you put it in. Um, the, I think the issue that interests us is the question of publicness. Um, and how is public space and public interaction changing? What does it mean to be public? You know, people like Rem Coolhouse claim that publicness has gone online, that there, you know, that public space is, there is no publicness in public space anymore. I don't think I would agree with that, but obviously I agree. I understand that online publics have transformed what it means to be public. But I think that um, physical public space is still really crucial. And in fact, we've maybe tended to neglect it on the assumption that online you know, can be where publicness in terms of public deliberation, debate, interaction can happen, and that's fine. And in fact, I think recent events have shown that actual physical gathering in public spaces um, is also crucial, and how the online and offline public connect, and how public space is policed, if you will, is crucial. Yeah. Sure, and of course, the other thing is that much of uh, what is carried online becomes significant when it's covered on television, mm. which can then in turn have an effect either encouraging or discouraging physical public participation. I mean, these things are in a complex interrelationship, yeah. I would think. Absolutely, and one of the reasons why physical participation in public space is important is not only is precisely because it is vis visible, vis visualizable, in a way that online activities are not. And so, if you want to cover it with imagery, you need, you know, hundreds of thousands of people in Tahrir Square or whatever. And this happened during the pro like the protest, in fact, mm. in, that, yes. in that case, yep. didn't it? As you said, because you started during the Mubarak regime. So, Un yeah, unfortunately. Well, I don't want to say unfortunately. Um, the other focus that we're interested in is not so much special events, but everydayness. Um, and so we did stop gathering data before the fall of Mubarak. Um, and in a way, I'm quite glad that it didn't happen during it, because the whole issue of everydayness would have been sort of blown out of the water by having a revolution occurring around us. Yeah. No, sure. I once gave a keynote to the Outdoor Advertising Association oh, yes. of America. Ooh, yes, out of home advertising. That's what they like or, to call it. Ooh, ooh. Because yeah, right. a friend of mine is one of the honchos there, but he's also a public artist. Mm. Uh, I mean, he does gigantic public art that he gives away to the very, very poor, as in financially poor parts mm. of LA where he lives and works. Mm. And he's very committed to the idea that outdoor art can blend advertising and art and publicness and all this stuff. 
And there you get lots of NIMBYs, not in my backyard mm. people, who are very exercised by things like LED advertising signs that they think will make them smash their car, yeah. or they think will diminish the resale value of their homes yeah. if they live in that kind of classic Los Angeles mixed-use yeah. area where it's suburbia, but suddenly it's also the main street and all that stuff. I think... Um, Quite interesting when these yeah. things come together and fight. Well, I think this. I think this. There's always this issue of what is the oldest, what is the latest, what is the newest technology, obsolescence, and I think these screens, although they're now, they've been around for a bit now, but they're about 12, 15 years old max, and they do often. They are often a way of signifying, oh, we're upscaling this neighbourhood. Um, we're going up market. We're with the latest, newest thing. Um, we've got disposable income here. Um, but you don't necessarily want them in the suburban neighbourhood. You want them at the mall, in the intersection, at the intersection and so on. And that's partly for the kinds of reasons you've been talking about, sort of snob value. But it's also because it's, there's a genuine light pollution issue, and if they've got noise going with them, sound pollution too. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. And in... Well, this is not the city where I we did a lot of research. One area, one city I know where this has been a really major issue is Hong Kong, where, as you know, it's very packed and people live cheap by the jowl. And so it's even worse than having neon signs going on and off through your window all night because these things, the luminescence of these screens is much more powerful. And it's constant, isn't it? It can be if they're on all night, yes. Yeah. Um, so if you fly down into London in the dawn or at night, um, you'll find that the first thing you see is actually the big screen in Piccadilly Square. It's the most luminescent, most powerful light coming out of London at the moment. Yeah. And isn't there a, I could be wrong about this, a Chinese artist, or at least an Asian-named artist, apologies for my ignorance, who did some big event, maybe in Melbourne or maybe in Hong Kong, where he took photos of ordinary people and then put them up on gigantic uh, electronic billboards? I think maybe, maybe, yeah. People, like, have been, people have been doing various yeah. kinds of... And you could apply to yeah. your image. And you'd oh, OK, and you'd yeah. told which millisecond... <laughs> It's right. Of you would appear. <laughs> Don't miss the bus. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, make sure the whole family's there yes. at 3.02 yes. a.m. <laughs> but no, it's, it's interesting. There's a, there's a Hollywood movie with Judy Holliday. Hmm. I don't know if you remember this. From the mid-50s, where she buys advertising space in Times Square <laughs> because she's arrived from the Midwest and she has no world in her hmm. life. And oh, it's called It Could Happen to You. Uh -huh. And Jack Lemon is a young photographer she falls in love with. But anyway, suddenly this space becomes incredibly valuable. And the question is, will she give up her thing saying, uh -huh. hi, you know, Chris Berry's arrived in right. Manhattan to live <laughs> and is available for something yes. in order to get all this money from whatever, a Kleenex yeah. or whatever. You know what I mean? It's pretty interesting. I think there is also something about the magic of the moving image that mm -hmm. still... A still sort of a lingering trace or something that goes with these screens, even though they're so taken for granted, even though we don't look at them, you know, we sort of walk past them, we glance at them, we don't, they're not in a darkened space where we sort of gaze worshipfully at them, at them. but they still somehow carry that trace of how does that thing move, how does it work, you know. Um, so I think that 
it makes sense to me that people want to be on it, that there are various kinds of art events that make use of that um, idea that somehow there's something transformative connected with the technology of the moving image still. Well, the, I, some of this is also interesting, I think, in terms of tailoring these things to consumers. Um, I don't know how this works in terms of notions of publicness, but mm. this capacity now on freeways or highways to take a snapshot of a license plate, establish where the which suburb the person lives in, and hence probably their age and gender or something mm. like it. You can even find out exactly their age and gender mm. and race. And then change all the billboards they're going to see uh, for the next 20 kilometers mm. based on that. Mm. So in fact, as you drive or as I drive down the freeway in two cars 10 minutes apart, we're seeing completely different commercials mm. and fitting cars out so that they will receive into them the mm. commercial that suits that person. You know, it's very bizarre yeah. technical targeting that these places are trying to do now. Well, this is all the sort of fantasy of the advertising companies. Um, there's a, co a woman um, up at Lancaster called Anne Cronin who presented a paper at a conference we organised around all this research. Uh -huh, uh -huh. And we have a, an anthology coming out called Public Space, Public Media. Um, that uh, includes her essay and she works on ooh um, <laughs> from a rather sceptical perspective I would say because she's also, she basically count reads the industry's own research um, against the grain or, re or reads the bits they don't like to tell their clients about which is basically that very few people actually can remember anything they see on any of these things and they're not able to identify the ad when it's shown to them again um, etc etc and the ability to control what the public what the what the person perceives and looks at and so on is much more limited than they think so they always sell this stuff on the idea that um, you know, your six million people will see your ad over the course of three months because it's this crossroads or whatever. But there's a real distinction between six million people will pass by your ad and six million people will actually register your ad and, and those kinds of things. Well, that's, I love reading advertising stuff when they refer to people like us as the herd. Oh, really? Um, okay. Yes. Or, yes. Um, <laughs> we, can, we can corral them for at least half an hour or yes, this, yes. this yes. sort of thing. Yes. <laughs> and again, it's, again, it's their fantasies. And, and really in response to their frustration actually because the minute you install one of these things of course the next thing people do is they get their own screen device which blocks it out you know and earphones and all the rest of it and public transport is obviously another area which interests me a lot um, and Shanghai public transport is absolutely covered with moving image screens you know from including the seats of ta the, the backs of taxi seats the front seats have a screen on every, you know you you just it's almost impossible to avoid it um, but over the course of the research I saw very quickly how quickly people in, in Shanghai were adopting um, you know various kind of everything from the iPod on to block it out um, and we worked with a photographer and uh, one of the images he took you know just snapping away this is just this great image of people in the subway train and of course there's a screen and it's playing the news and so on but they've all put their face up against the window to look out of the window to see if they can see something else for God's sake, you know, like, so kind of in, um, in Mexico City on the big um, metro bus which goes right through the centre of the city running north-south a bit like the big 
the northern line. Yeah, or in, in LA, a bit like the, the old big uh, avenues before they were the freeways mm. and so on, these very wide places. Mm. Well, there's a special designated bus lane. Mm. They have on all the buses uh, these kinds of screens. Mm. Including one that I saw, I was never able to get a picture of it mm. this because the crush was too great. <laughs> Advice on what to do about the electronic waste indications oh, of LED advertising <laughs> and how to factor this into you know your world. There were one way to smash yeah, this. Hammer this screen. screen. Yes, yeah, right. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> But that sounds like it. So this new book, um, so the anthology collection, comes yes. from a conference that you... Right, so that's the anthology... You yeah. yeah, so the anthology will come out with Paul Grave. And that's Janet, myself, and Rachel editing that. Yes. The four of us will write a book. Uh, we're in the process of writing at the moment, and it's contracted to Amsterdam yes. University Press. Mm -hmm. And I don't yet know exactly... You know, it's still a little way out... And then I'm doing one, one book by myself called Screening Shanghai um, because it be, have, won't have a huge amount of text in it. But because the photographer we worked with in Shanghai was a real pro and he produced such amazing imagery, um, we thought we'd like to do a, a book specifically about this in Shanghai using a lot of his photo photographs. And that will come out with Hong Kong UP, I guess, next year. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, so so it, it's really going to feature those. It'll be a large... It'll do text explaining. Um, it'll be... It'll have two photograph series that he did specifically. Um, and then it'll have other things that he photographed in response to the research we were doing. And so it'll have probably a few short essays, like two to three thousand word essays by me and a lot of photos. Um, and they will speak to each other, I hope, in interesting ways. Yeah. And will they do a spiffo job in terms of the images? So that I think so, yes. Nice I, yes, they will. I mean, we, we, we were able to make sure that that was possible with both Amsterdam UP and Hong Kong UP. Whether it's going to be, you know, high gloss all the way, I don't know, but certainly certainly sec sections of the book will be, yeah. Oh, Books will be, yeah. yeah. That's quite, a, quite an enterprise across those countries with all those people. Mm, I guess the fun. fact that, yeah. that most of you, not the photographer, are based in London mm. makes it a bit easier and that you can meet. Sure, yeah, otherwise we couldn't do it, yeah. yeah. Then we had a photographer in Cairo as well and uh, research assistants in all the cities we were, where we were working. So that certainly helped a lot. And I was... Well, we, we were lucky in both cities in that we were also able to find local academics who were also interested in the project and sort of assisted us to spend time there or to, you know, locate various things we need to locate and so on. Yeah. 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 So it's good. I enjoyed doing it a lot. And of course, in a way, it was a response for me to moving from a cinema studies department at Berkeley into media and communications at Goldsmiths. At Goldsmiths. Because you, you'd been in cinema studies at the University of California, Berkeley for four years, a number of years, yeah. and then went into this less focused media and communications department. Well, I mean, I, su broadly focused. I suppose I would say it was a department that obviously they hired me and Rachel and Janet and other people who were there at the time on the basis that we did film. <laughs> And the things we were teaching were very much film-related. But I think um, 
My own background is film and television studies, sort of as I imagine yours might be as well in some ways. Um, and like, in 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 that, I think both of us don't think about these things in separate boxes, but most of academia does, and television is in media studies, and in, you know, film is cinema studies, and so I. One of the things I liked about being at Goldsmiths was that it enabled me or it encouraged me to think about how to interrogate those boundaries and then to see how that would be productive. So, in some sense, I think this project about public screens is, is partly asking the question where does what is screen studies? What are its limits? Is something like this part of screen studies, or should it only be confined to um, narrative-based you know, materials, or you know, etc., etc.? And I would say no. Um, and I think this is very much part of some expanded notion of screen studies rather than cinema studies or television studies. No, I, I smiled when when Chris said I might define myself that way because I was remembering that I learned quite a lot oh. about U.S. television by listening to. <laughs> lectures <laughs> on, on the topic, where you may have thought, you sometimes would say, I feel as I'm one week ahead of the textbook, but you, that puts you about 25 years ahead of everybody else in the room, because I learned about ratings and households owning televisions and households using televisions mm, from yeah. the hut and the hot, yes, yes. fantastic yeah. acronyms, from being a tutor, a person running little sections um, on a course Chris was uh, the lecturer and teaching us about these things. So, yes, I do think those things should go together. And, yeah. you know, I definitely learned a lot, actually, from you. Uh, but I still trot out today. In fact, I have a little Brisbane story for you, which you'll really appreciate. In one of your lectures, you explained to us the difference between a rating and a share. Yeah, yes. And then, I forget why, not long afterwards, I was moonlighting at some other school because, you know, we were paid nothing. Mm. Or at least I thought we were paid. We weren't paid much, no. And at this other school, they had as a guest lecturer a guy who had turned out until that day had been, you know, vice president of audience <laughs> or something at a local Brisbane commercial TV station. Mm. He came in to give a lecture on ratings and he didn't know what <laughs> rating was became blindingly obvious to me as the sort of tutor that right. there may have been a reason why he lost his job <laughs> that day. He was, you know, vice president of audiences, but he didn't actually know what the measurements of audience meant. Of course, they're all fictitious and ludicrous, as we know, but nevertheless, there are definitions of yeah. how to do these things. So anyway, he gave us, I, you know, helpfully, <laughs> my hand up and says, Mr. Spong, some people think <laughs> that, 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 that he said, you know, really good question. I, I was working for Station 20 years. I never did get the difference between a rating. <laughs> so rating, by the way, dear listener, in case you're not one of the pathetic nerds that's interested in this, is more or less the sort of, you know, number of, of people watching the program. And the share is the number watching one particular... The percentage of the audience. Is the, the part that within the actual audience is watching a given station or whatever. So I look at Chris for backup to make sure I just get it well, so if you've got a 20% share, but the rating is one, it doesn't really, it's not so great. You know, but if you've got 20% share of, you know, a rating of several thousand, then that's good. It makes a big difference. I mean, anyone who is selling television advertising certainly should know what it is, otherwise they're going to be underselling their product. Um, I suppose it's, this is off research, but I'm interested in these kind of things because I think 
we all need to be to be aware of these things to understand what how how what mediates between the sort of social, ideological, cultural values and the product in terms of the industry itself as a process with its own codes and behaviours and determinations and so on. And that's, I suppose, one way in which I certainly value something like Bordwell's research, where he puts a lot of emphasis on that kind of thing. Oh, this is uh, David, David Bordwell, um, who's now Professor Emeritus, I think, um, at Madison, Wisconsin, and who's one of the great film scholars, um, possibly the great film scholar, um, just to offend everybody else. Um, and um, I was having a conversation recently with people about training for postgraduate students and we were sort of thinking about how useful it would be not just for the students but also for us to get people to come in and tell us what all the names of the new sort of digital techniques involved in film and television production are and what they actually mean because again you hear about them but you don't really know what they are and yet if you're looking at a television show today or a film inevitably they're involved and you need to be able to a recognize if you can where that's at work of course the effort is to try to make it unrecognizable <laughs> and b you know what what is it what does it involve how much does it cost etc etc yeah um, now, getting back to the Chinese theme in this, but relating it to television, in a sense, over the, I don't know, almost 30 years probably, you've been publishing on China has been, and it, it has been 30 years now, yeah. 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 Um, it's gone from being fabulated in each case as then... Uh, an emergent oddity almost and a place of high art to now being you know in some ways the, the central media powerhouse of the future if not the present at least rhetorically do you know what uh, I mean yes and, and I'm not suggesting those are real fabulations as it were but they're they're stereotypes mm. that I think were around at each end of that 30 year period I wonder if you could just engage indulge me for a moment with you know you pulled a face when I came out with those antiques. no no but indulge me by thinking about what's changed over that time in the context of that those sorts of fantasies I think my way of responding to that would be to say that I was asked a couple of years ago to write uh, an essay or a piece about Chinese film studies in English sort of the discipline if you like and I've, I've written a couple of these pieces recently reflecting on its history <clears throat> Um, and in the essays that I wrote, um, I tried to really draw attention to things that we take for granted but didn't once. Um, and a very obvious example is that when, in the very early 1980s, um, I was beginning to write on Chinese film and not many other people were doing it then. It was not taken for granted that you had to speak or read Chinese um, because so few people in the West did. Um, and also because it was not, research on this was not happening very much in Chinese studies, which was still very focused on, you know, the ancient world. Um, so it's those kind of changes that have struck me as time's gone on. And I think that research on Chinese cinema has followed now, follows cinema studies. And again, that wasn't necessarily predetermined. Indeed, some of the earliest research on Chinese cinema was done in things like sociology and so on. Um, 
Well, I remember there used to be in English a translate. Oh, this is a bit different from what you're saying. If I can interrupt for one second, there used to be, I don't know, by the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences, they bring out Chinese journals of sociology mm. and anthropology in English. Mm. Like the yeah. And that was certainly there, wasn't it? Yes, in fact, a guy called Stan Rosen, who um, is based in California, his work is very sociologically and economically informed, and I think he engaged with all that kind of material. Um, I suppose the big question now is whether, I mean, China has adopted all the forms um, of big American media and big American cinema. Um, so CCTV, China Central Television, has its own international service now, modelled on, but also competing with CNN, BBC, Al Jazeera, etc. Um, the Chinese film industry is definitely taken on board the blockbuster mode and is busy producing blockbusters um, and hopes one day to sell them to the world, etc., etc. Um, the big question in the face of this is, does this mean Chinese media are participating in a kind of denationalized global media world in the way that many American media corporations are doing? Or is this part of a process of sort of national enlargement and national power, given that all these Chinese organizations are ultimately linked back to the state and the national government? And the jury is very much out on that, and different scholars argue about it in different ways. Um, and in a strange kind of way, that does link back to the kinds of topics that people were writing about when people first got interested in Chinese cinema in the West, which was actually before the whole art house thing in the mid-80s, but at a time when Chinese cinema was still really seen as a category of propaganda cinema um, in the late 70s, early 80s, and people, Chinese films from the 50s and 60s were being put into retrospectives at film festivals in Paris and Italy, and people were looking at them in that way. And again, they were asking, so do we look at this as cinema, or do we look at it as, as, or do we look at it as cinema as art, or do we look at it as propaganda, pedagogy, communication? So some of that, that echoes in some way with some of the issues, I think, that are on the table right now. Yeah. And I remember speaking of really agitprop stuff. One of the films you, you showed in the classes we taught was called something like Chinese Basketball Player Number 58. Um, yeah. Woman Basketball Player Number 5. Or is it Number 7? Yeah. Number 5, I think. Anyway, well, my, my favourite moment of that is when they're happily throwing bricks from a construction site down to the other yeah. women below catching them and they smile and laugh as they throw and catch the bricks. It's absolutely yeah. I, yeah. I love the, there's lots of moments like that in I Chinese love this cinema. Kind of yeah, yeah. I hope they never go away. Well, one of my recent interests has become, again, Chinese Cultural Revolution era, and um, where you know that's more than, that's real propaganda. Um, but it's also really aesthetically interesting because it's this unique sort of art form which is driven by politics, but also blends together things like ballet with Chinese opera, you know, and stuff like that. Um, so somehow in the last few years I've found myself more and more interested in reinvestigating that era and both looking at the films but also trying to understand more about the culture of film consumption around them. So on the one hand I've done some work, I did, 
I did some work recently on colour in these films and wrote about um, the issue of colour as a, a sort of force by itself, not necessarily, even though we assume red equals revolution, but trying to say, well, yes, red is harnessed to revolution, but red itself is not necessarily revolution. It comes to, to have that meaning. But to talk about it's also its affective power. And you know how people who work on colours will say that uh, uh, red is a colour that sort of comes at you, whereas black is absorptive, you know, moves away, and white is expansive, and things like that. And so trying to think about them as forces and how that kind of works with the music and things like that to create this very dynamic, kinetic sort of form. Um, and then I was also doing some other work, which really, I, was some of the research I've enjoyed most in recent years, where, I mean, there's a long story behind this, um, because I was asked to write about film and fashion, and, um, and Toby, you know, is looking at me now and uh, will be indeed sort of shocked, as anybody would, that I, anyone would ask me to write about film and fashion, since, uh, you know, I have sort of... <laughs> I've made a major exception to my usual colour choice by wearing navy blue and not just only black today, but that's about it. Um, but this, never mind why, but I responded to this by, because I was in Shanghai at the time, by organising a project with a colleague there where we got together with some people who were in their 60s now mostly, I would say, um, and therefore had been young at the time of the Cultural Revolution, to ask them about, the, to, to talk to them about what they wore and films that they watched and to see whether they were connections. And so the, these films are obviously not intended to be wardrobe suggestions, but um, you know they were intended to have high political messages. But actually, it was very interesting to see how people were, you know, very cons very interested in them in terms of the clothing options. Um, and again, we think everybody dressed the same, but no, they didn't, and etc., etc. So the idea of trying to reconstruct a kind of again this question of everydayness public and private, but in this case, in terms of the film culture of that yeah. time, is something I'd like to spend a lot more time on, if so, I could. So after, I guess, revolution more or less, 66 to 77? That's the 10 years that? of the Cultural Revolution. The Cultural revolution. And the high decade, the high, high point years, if you like, were 66 through about 69. And then it kind of coasted down. coasted down. So when all those people are, all the people who've been central to that are cast out from dominant positions mm. of power, what happens to the filmmakers who had been the spokespeople for that revolution? Were their careers over? No, no. Looked at now? The entire film industry was stigmatised as a kind of Western bourgeois medium in '66. Um, so nearly all the filmmakers were, in fact, required to undergo re-education and so on. Good thing too. Absolutely, I'm all in favour of it. Um, for other people, you understand. Um, and so, <laughs> you love being sent off to the field, else. <laughs> I've always wanted to be in the cow shed, is just what they were sent. Um, so they, um, but at the same time, the the government realised very that they wanted and needed people to make films. And so they were all recruited back in. And if you look at these Cultural Revolution model opera films, they're nearly always, um, well, not always, but often credited as sort of collectively directed or collectively made. But behind that are actually the names of various famous filmmakers who were brought back from the cowshed in order to work on these films. Does this sound like the blacklist or what in Hollywood? Indeed, in many ways, yeah. Um, 
And so uh, they were not punished after 76 for, ha for having done that. Um, really, the number of people who were um, purged, I mean, because people, so many people had been purged during the Cultural Revolution or before the Cultural Revolution, at the end of the Cultural Revolution, I think people felt like no more purges. And so, you know, a certain central elite of people who'd really been centrally involved in it were punished. Um, but the numbers maybe were not so huge. Interesting. Yeah. Um, getting back to the, the present and future, I, I wanted mm. to ask you a question about that and then another question about your own dark past, as it were. Oh, okay. And dark publishing past. Mm. Okay. Um, I'm glad it's only the publishing past. <laughs> <laughs> the question about the present and future is this fetish in the West. Again, the West is such a ludicrous and annoying term mm. for how to make money out of China. Mm. Uh, this is a complete obsession in this country, uh, incredibly noisome, yeah. but it seems to be a complete obsession almost everywhere. Mm. Uh, Andrew Ross touched on this nicely with that, the title of his book, uh, Fast Boat to China. Mm. Um, and the idea that you know, they're the world's factory and we're the, we're the world's ideas people. And the Chinese striking back against this with their doctrine yeah. of creative China. Right, as I said, that's Plus, over, of course, yeah. centuries yeah. of whatever. So, we're, yes, so, and of course, pre pressure in class struggle terms as wages rise, education rises, expectations rise, so the capacity to be the world's engine room. Diminishes, right? We all know that that's so. What does it mean again? I'm sorry to use some mm. Time Magazine mm. language here, but that's what I'm reduced to now. What does it mean? What does it mean to, to think about having a really open, globally oriented culture industry whilst not having ideas of liberal democracy? Right. I mean, the, the, the way in which the Americans try to characterize China, I can't help but I've been living there for 20 years. No, but that's true, and I mean, although. It means a lot of different things. For one, it's very complicated because at the same time as China has got this massive, highly capitalized media complex, industrial complex going, it's also got a very huge independent, semi-underground filmmaking, publishing, etc., etc., cultural alternative industry going, which um, is, to me, much more interesting than that mainstream industry, to be honest with you. Um, I think that it creates the, the circumstances you've described make it very difficult for me to imagine Chinese popular culture going global in the same way that Hollywood has done. Um, perhaps with certain exceptions. I think music, for example, uh, is something that may well be, you know, it's not the political content of the songs or whatever is not crucial usually, unless you're doing protest songs. But well, in the 60s, we all loved yeah. Helmsman's Tears, of course. They, so, absolutely, yeah. there you go. Um, and <laughs> Brian Eno didn't call his thing Taking Tiger Mountain for strategy, by strategy for nothing. Um, but nonetheless, um, you know, I think that Chinese popular music is spreading in a way that, on the other hand, Chinese films so far have not taken off globally. Chinese television also, etc., etc. Um, some people in China worry that this is because Chinese television, for example, is mostly taking on and copying, um, and sometimes paying license fees to copy Western formulas um, and Western show formats. 
um, and therefore there's nothing original. But I think it's more, it's not so much about originality, it's more that within circumstances of very strict condition, uh, sorry, strict censorship, there's nothing very sort of edgy or exciting, it's all very bland. Um, it tends to be very same, same. So if you're, you know, if you're sitting in, I don't know, Germany or Italy or wherever, why would you import this sort of softer, blander copy of what you've already got? If, on the other hand, it was sort of edgy and different and doing something exciting, maybe you would. Um, but it just doesn't seem that way to people outside China at the moment. These shows, on the other hand, can seem very exciting to people in China because of they're much more dynamic than the sort of things they had before. So I think, at the moment, that's the situation with television and film. Um, but the Chinese government certainly has this ambition to use all these things as a form of soft power. And soft power is, in fact, if you... Chinese students who are applying with government funding to do PhDs in our areas nearly always want to do research on soft power because that's what they can get scholarships for from China. Um, and also that's because the entire discourse, if you're in film studies, media studies, whatever, in China, one of the major research areas is soft power. Um, which legitimates the area as being useful from the point of view of the government. Yeah. And what about this, let's call it alternative sector that you mm. referred to that's doing perhaps more interesting mm. things? What about it? Um, Where is it? <laughs> Who is it? What's it doing that's different? Well, I guess um, there's a Chinese filmmaker designer, uh, sound artist, a guy called Oni, and he had a website that he called Alternative Archive in English, uh, which is in fact a kind of pun in Chinese. It's, uh, it, it's, the Chinese term is Bieguan, um, which sound, sounds the same as two different characters, and the two different characters mean don't bother me or leave me alone or um, you know, don't you worry or something like that. And so I think that says a lot about the status of this kind of um, independent culture, that it doesn't want, it's a, it's a sort of side building, if you like, um, which is, the, again, the literal translation of Bieguan in the characters he uses. Um, the alternative archive is a side building. It's not trying to replace the main building or knock it over, but it also wants to be left alone to get on with its own thing. <coughs> So in that space, Chinese filmmakers and artists will explore doing all kinds of things that, that are would not pass the censors, would not make it into the mainstream media, but at the same time are not so extreme that they run the risk of being accused of some sort of counter-revolutionary crime, if that is still a crime in China, or some sort of political crime. Um, so that's the area they work in. Um, independent documentary, I would say, has been one of the most powerful areas there. And I edited a book together with some other colleagues a couple of years ago on China's so-called new documentary film movement. Um, and they do things in this area where, such as 
uh, Wiseman, Fred Wiseman, American observational uh, direct cinema filmmaker, who makes what might otherwise be known as cinema verite films. They do lots of Fred Wiseman style films, hanging out in a news organization, a hospital, a police station, wherever, um, covering the public institution. But they also do a lot of oral histories. And these are really important, I think, because they do really create an archive of interviews, with often with older people, whose memories of the Mao era um, may soon be lost, and which are not are excluded from the official archive. So as you probably know, China had a major famine as a result of the Great Leap Forward, where they tried to undertake radical production procedures, which when they failed, led to a series of harvest failures. And perhaps 20 or 30 million people starved to death in those years, right at the end of the 50s and the beginning of the 1960s. The Chinese government acknowledges that there were problems, but doesn't really want to talk about them. So um, one of these uh, documentary filmmakers, a guy called Wu Guang, he has a large, what he calls a workstation in Beijing, and lots of young people who are interested in what he's doing come there, and he trains them up. And a project he launched recently was for those whose family roots go back to the countryside and still have family in the countryside, and they're mostly in their 20s. He asked them to go back to their villages and interview people, their, their grandparents' generation. And of course, what was so fascinating in the films that come out is that you find out that most of these young people had no idea that this happened in their village, that nobody talks about it, right? Um, but then they interview the old people, and some of the old people don't, still don't want to talk about it. They just don't want to talk about it, not because it's so traumatic, although that might be part of it, but also because they're scared that if they talk about it, um, their grandchild will get into trouble. Um, but then they do start talking about it, and of course, what's happening is these films are like a testimony. Um, so they're a bit, you know, it's a bit. Thank you, very thank you. It's a bit like Landsman or something like that, where you're getting these amazing testimonies of what happened that nobody talks about that are being put into the into the archive for the future. Um, another very interesting film covers the land reforms, and this is where you've probably seen scenes of landlords being denounced and then the land is seized and redistributed. And this was happened around before the revolution and around the time of the revolution in 1949. And it remains the Communist Party's proudest hour. Um, so they go to a village which was memorialized in a very famous reportage novel where, which was written about the land reform campaign. And again, they interviewed people who are now in their 80s, many of whom were actually the people, the, the party officials who conducted the campaign. Um, but I guess now they're on the verge of dying. They have less reason to hold back. And they, what they say indicates that at least in that village, perhaps one in 10 people were murdered, basically. Um, and that the part that, that it was a conscious policy um, to involve the other villagers in the process of beating and killing these people so that those villagers um, had complicity, if you will. And then, obviously, if you, again, if you extrapolate that across northern China where the, where the land reforms happened, again, we're talking perhaps 10 or 20 million people who were killed. 
in the process of conducting land reforms. Um, and so I think all of that makes this kind of work very important that they're doing, yeah. Now, we've got about five minutes left, okay. more or less, Chris. And what I wanted to do in terms of this dark past was, just in case there are one or two listeners out there who are not familiar with your oeuvre, Oh. Um, to mention <laughs> Pardon? The, yeah, right. <laughs> you are yeah, well, more yeah. than my job's worth, Governor. Yeah. <laughs> to mention one or two of the books we haven't mentioned. Uh, so I'm thinking um, back, back, back in the 80s, you did a book for the British Film Institute mm. uh, that was putting together lots of materials about what was already being thought of as a new wave of Chinese film. Um, I, I think the book you're referring to is a book that I put together with, which is really, uh, it's called News Perspectives on Chinese Cinema. That's the one. And um, that was the first, in its original form in 1985, it came out with Harvard as a working papers thing. And then we expanded it for the BFI. And it was one of the early efforts to put together an anthology. And again, it just tells you how much this field of Chinese film studies in English has changed because when we put it together we really couldn't find enough people to fill the book and so we had to translate work from Chinese and things like that um, then so that's what ni late 1980s and by the time you get into the new century I remember going to a conference at Hong Kong Baptist University where there were 200 papers um, and suddenly you realize oh okay this is just gone like crazy um, but right yes but back then it had that it had that useful function of putting on the map the fact that now there were people working uh, on Chinese film in English and enough of us that there was some sort of focus and it also meant that very early on English language restricted readers were reading things written by by locals as it were by Chinese yeah mm. by Chinese scholars yes and I mean I've been involved in translation always and I've always thought that was very important but I think it's so I you know translated a, a book about the Beijing Film Academy by Ni Zhen and the sort of origins of the fifth generation there for example and, and other things um, but I think translation is complicated by the fact that often the interests and values of scholarly interests and values vary a lot between what people are doing here and what people are doing say in the People's Republic um, and so that can sometimes mean that the kind of work that's highly valued in one place is not, the relevance of it is just not perceived in the other, and it goes both ways. I mean, I think quite often what people here write about Chinese film, people in China don't really get why we're writing that stuff, uh, and vice versa, you know. Um, so. Yes, I received a book yeah. last week called, I think, uh, Western Contemporary Film Theories. Oh. Okay. Um, and that's the only bit I can read. No, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I should have brought it along today. Yeah, I can tell you what else was in it. Yeah, yeah no, well, it, in the, I guess it's an index. It gives the English language, oh, okay. English character names of all that. Yeah. But the rest of it, yeah. I don't Okay, so that happens. And then I'm sure there's a lot in between, but I'm familiar with a book that was about queer media in Asia. I did that with, uh, Fran, later, with Fran, Fran Martin, Martin and Audrey Yu. Actually, not that much later, I don't think. I'm trying to remember when that came out. It was in the actually, 90s, wasn't it? It was in the 90s, and it, so it was re relatively early. Again, a relatively early sort of stab at doing that. Yeah. Um, and again, we wanted to... We were aware very early on that the 
rapid emergence of queer cultures in East Asia was tied to the availability of mobile fine, phones, the internet, etc., etc. Um, and so, you know, where you've had a situation where gay cultures had established themselves publicly in the West prior to all that, it was happening contemporaneously in East Asia. Um, not that there weren't cultures before, but they were very subterranean, or, or they were, or there were transgender cultures that were public and were accepted, but not gay and lesbian cultures. Um, so that was what that anthology was about. And so celebrating Julie Virtual. Perhaps. I don't really celebrate Julie Birch. <laughs> Arch Zionist as she is, yes. And not only that, she was on Desert Island Discs. I know, I saw, yes. And Confirming my impression of both her and Desert Island Discs. The, yeah. the disc that she decided to take over was the only one left on the island. It was the Israeli national anthem, I heard this, yes. Which, as I say, confirmed my impression of her and Desert Island Discs. <laughs> I used to have a soft spot for Kirsty, but I understand she's a kind of rentier class monster. I was about to say something. <laughs> anyway, yes, yeah, sorry. So I, that, I, so that, yeah. I have a softer spot for her than I do for Julie Bircher. Yeah, Julie Bircher doesn't have a soft spot for anybody. So. Well, she's for herself. <laughs> yes, okay. But anyway, there is this coterminous development of uh, mm. gay and lesbian mm. culture with the emergence of these mobile devices. Right? Yeah. Uh, that yeah. was what you guys were really targeting. Yes, yeah, so we were looking at bulletin board. I mean, I think yeah. Fran and I did a comparison, Fran Martin and I did a comparison of how university bulletin board technology was involved in the emergence of queer cultures in South Korea and Taiwan in similar and different ways, for example. Um, and somebody else, I can't remember. I mean, I don't remember if actually there was an essay on this in the book now, but I do remember one if of If there wasn't, there should have been. There should have been. There really should have been. Because one of the things I remember from this time was visiting the Philippines and discovering how there was an entire sort of mobile phone texting argot that was a sort of gay lesbian language, basically, that had developed for people to communicate. Um, through texting and so on, which was very interesting. Yeah. Well, that was a landmark. Was that Duke, maybe? That was Duke, yes. Yeah. So, rattling along, so yeah. any other titles that avid um, followers should God. be avidly following? Well, I suppose I did myself um, a book out on the films made after the Cultural Revolution, about the Cultural Revolution, so sort of circling around the Cultural Revolution again called Post-Socialist Cinema and Post-Socialist China in, hmm, so bad on years, but I think it was about um, five or six years ago. And uh, also um, the other thing I suppose that I've done is, again, chiming with some of the things that I was saying earlier about my interest in publicness, is a book called Electronic Elsewheres, which I co-edited with Lynn Spiegel and Kim So-Yong. And my work in that looks at the idea of public space and the idea of public television as a kind of public space in the Chinese context um, and tries to think away from public sphere theory, forget about that, and try to think in a different kind of way. Um, so those are the main things that are coming to mind no, at the moment. I, yeah. I must admit I haven't read your monograph you mentioned, but I do know the, other, the last book you mentioned and the queer, mm. I guess what's now called Locketively, I don't understand what that is, but that stuff, they're both great books, um, real landmarks, and so I do urge people to look at thank you. that. And thank you very much for joining us. I'm hopeful that maybe mm. when... 
the books start piling out of this public uh, yep. media project that the four, five, or six of you mm. might come together in the pod to tell us about them. That would be really good. That would be interesting. Yes, that would be great. Okay. Thanks. A Thank lot. you.